all forces of the new democratic revolution, including the Communist Party of the Philippines, the New People's Army, the National Democratic Front, the revolutionary mass organizations, and the organs of democratic power, recognize that more than 90% of the population are Christians, and that the new democratic revolution cannot be won without the participation and support of the Christians. Thus, the Christians for National Liberation has been initiated to engage the Christians as such and give full play to their participation and support in the Philippine Revolution. The CNN has played a highly significant role in promoting ecumenism by uniting within the revolutionary movement the faithfuls of the Roman Catholic Church, the Philippine Independent Church, and various Protestant denominations. By developing mutual understanding between Christians and Muslims, by opposing Christian chauvinism, so-called, and other unchristian phenomena engendered by colonial history and continuing bigotry, and by realizing the dialogue and cooperation between religious believers and unbelievers. While guided by dialectical and historical materialism and the revolutionary practice, the communists respect the fundamental beliefs and theology of the Christians. They uphold the freedom of conscience and do not impose their ideology on others. When others differ from them in opinion, they prefer to listen and learn first and then patiently explain the side for the purpose of mutual understanding and cooperation. They avoid deflection of the issues of national and social liberation towards a heated debate of religious issues about the social needs in the lands of the people. But they happily welcome and agree with any attempt to develop the dialogue and cooperation between them and the Christians in their obedience to the second great commandment, to love and serve the people in consonance with the love of God above all. Welcome to the Magnificast. I'm Matt. And I'm Dean. This week we're talking about the interesting coalition between Christians and communists in the Philippines throughout the 70s and 80s. Overall, this movement transformed church people into more radical and politically engaged individuals and offered valuable avenues for support of communists. But before all of that, we're going to catch up first. Uh, then we'll talk more about the historical situation in the Philippines, and then we're going to kind of use that as a springboard to talk about more revolutionary violence and Christian responsibilities. Um, so lots of uh, lots of uh, history that you probably didn't know about, and then also, um, I don't know, like always, we'll just talk about violence, uh, kind of like as we always do. Uh, but first, uh, Dean, what's up, man? What have you been doing? Uh, well, the, the Ikea struggle continues, uh, so for those following along at home, uh, I got a couch, we got a couch, it was defective, we spent all day putting it together, and then they delivered a new couch, uh, so we, like, took apart the old couch, put together the new couch, and it's defective in the same exact way, so, uh, I don't know, I have a long, uh, week of customer service calls ahead of me, I guess, but the more exciting news is, uh, I saw the new parts of the Caribbean movie, which was very good. Uh, I like all the pirate movies. I think they're uh, extremely underrated, um, and I will uh, fight on that. I will die on that hill, for sure. We're going to lose all of our Patreon supporters after you say that. <laughs> or gain them. We'll gain more and more. Just like all the pirate, just the pirate crowd, though. Yeah, yeah, just building a fleet of uh, pirate Patreon supporters. Is there a pirate Twitter? Is there just like a Twitter for people who are like total pirate heads? Oh <laughs> uh, man, that's something I hadn't thought about, but if there isn't, there should be. What what is it that you like so much about those movies? Like, why is uh, that a thing? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. They're just good. They're very fun, goofy movies. Uh, but uh, I just am a sucker for, I don't know, 
uh, scale and aesthetic and massive fantastical narratives. Um, and also, I just respect franchises that, like, break out of their uh, super main characters and kind of do, like, some world-building stuff, and that's what Pirates is all about. And I just feel like they don't care if people like them or not, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> like, a bunch of people are like, we like being pirates, let's keep making pirate movies. And I'm like, yes, I like you being pirates, I'll keep watching them. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's cool, I guess. Uh, I don't think I've seen uh, past the second one. When, uh, oh man! Whichever movie is the one where the guy has an octopus face? <laughs> yeah, second and third one, octopus face. Oh, he has. But a... uh, okay. Yeah, uh, the fourth one—that's where it's at. Because then they quit all the uh, main storyline and they just do this crazy story about finding the fountain of youth. And there's all the stuff about colonialism and Catholicism and a missionary falls in love with a mermaid. Uh, man, it's all there. The fourth movie—that's where you got to go. Th- those are the uh, the pirates' deep cuts. That's right, deep cuts. That's only, what I'm talking about. Only super fans get that far yeah. in the pirate <laughs> yeah. franchise. Super yeah, fans yeah. and children. Yeah, on the uh, on the Tartuga forums. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, Reddit slash r slash Tartuga. I 100% believe that actually exists too. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Matt, what have you been up to? Um, uh i don't want to be too much of a downer my dad is very sick so we went to go visit him this weekend um and that was nice i guess seeing seeing him and hanging out with my family a little bit um he did the like the okay so this is kind of funny i guess um (laughs) he gave me like okay so he bought this 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 pair of shoes and then he like ended up not liking them so he gave them to me uh and i get i just like took them because like i don't know i'm not gonna say no to free shoes i guess <laughs> obviously <laughs> obviously and like uh they are like new balance or no sorry they're they're asics <laughs> they're like asics like sneakers and uh they are the most dad shoes you can imagine i love that uh they're uh, not that's good they're not white on white shoes but i think that <laughs> if i wore some like white tube socks with them i would be a dad like i'd be more of a dad than i am now i'd be a yeah, better yeah. dad I'd yeah be with le- a pair of cargo shorts yeah level two dad I need yeah, a yeah. I need a baseball cap, uh, cargo shorts, and uh, white tube socks. So that's what the Patreon money is going to these days <laughs> is uh, hooking me up with that stuff, getting me to dad level two, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, so it was good. Uh, I appreciate that gift from him. That's it's, good. It's, it's like uh, you know, it's not not is it just shoes, but it's also carries sort of like the sign value. Of, yeah, that's right. Uh, of dadness. <laughs> No, that's a lot of fun. Um, that reminds me. So Emily and I bought, um, in retrospect, this is a bad idea, but we bought matching um, Adidas sandals uh, uh, sort of on accident. They were like an impulse buy. Oh, yeah. So I don't know, greasing those gears. But uh, yeah, we fell for it. We bought them. And then we could never differentiate whose was whose, but mine is like larger. <laughs> uh, so on the weekend, I just like colored over all the uh, Adidas stripes um and like part of it was sort of resentful that i had like bought uh like just a thoroughly branded product but then another part of it was practical so uh for the last several days i've been playing it off like it's really practical but really it was actually very resentful like i sort of just like hate my past self for doing it so uh yeah just blocking out logos as though uh, it makes a difference it doesn't uh shannon and i have matching raincoats (laughs) nice i'm not resentful about it it's just yeah no like we're very we're very adorable because of it yeah yeah, I appreciate that. They're from yeah, so it's great. It's just good. <laughs> so sort of the inverse of your problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats. <laughs> Rub it in, why don't you? Yeah, of course. Uh, so um, in doing a bit of research on this project, uh, we both read uh, an article. Uh, the article is called The Theology of Struggle, Recognizing Its Place in Recent Philippine History by Anne Harris. Um, it's a pretty straightforward sort of sociological and affective account of the overarching narrative of the struggle in the Philippines until like the late 80s. Um, so uh, to give you uh, kind of an idea of what it's about and like kind of what the general topic that we're going to get into tonight is, I'll just like read the abstract and you guys can be on the same page as all of us. Uh, So here's the abstract. The theology of struggle is the name embraced in 1982 by a significant group of socially concerned Christians in the Philippines who, after experiencing conversion as a result of living and working among the poor, committed themselves to a new way of being church. 
For almost three decades, this new way of life saw church people construct new identities, act collectively, and challenge established religious, social, and cultural understandings. This commitment brought them under the leadership of the Communist Party of the Philippines, a group with an ideology perceived as antithetical to their beliefs. The theology of struggle is, however, a misnomer. It is not theological discourse in the traditional sense. Rather, it should be understood as a social movement. Multifaceted and complex, social movements strive for change, though often in dangerous circumstances. To comprehend how Christians in the Philippines came to join a communist-led struggle and their subsequent evolution into a movement of significance, one dimension of social movement theories employed the construction of identity. Dean pitched this idea to me um, to do this episode about um, the Communist Party in the Philippines and the Christians that got involved with them. And that seemed like a great idea. We both got super psyched for it. Um, Communist Party, Christians, that's like totally our our jam. That's like what we do on this podcast for sure. Um, But the more we got into the historical movements that were going on and like the ideology and all of like the complex politics, we quickly figured out we're just like unqualified to talk about this. Like, uh, there's there's so much going on. It's so complex that like we definitely can't learn about all of it and then like regurgitate it on a podcast. Um, and we don't really want to do a disservice to any of these people or groups because I think it's too important. Um, so uh, what we can do, though, is uh, try to use some of this as a springboard to talk about a larger question. Uh, but to get that question, I guess we'll have to introduce a few like of the actors in in all of this to you and there's lots of um, acronyms and stuff so maybe we can just we can get a few of those out of the way because i'm sure we'll talk about them so okay there's the communist party of the philippines that's uh, an important actor in this whole situation the acronym that is used is cpp okay um there's a bunch of other leftist organizations in the philippines and uh we probably too many for us to name like lots of different um leftists of different stripes lots of indigenous movements um, and stuff like that. And they all kind of fall under this one united front called the National Democratic Front or the NDF. Um, that's another acronym that we'll probably say a lot. And then finally, the Christians uh, of the Philippines come into this equation um, under the NDF, but in like a separate sort of organization called Christians for National Liberation or CNL. So that's the other acronym we'll probably throw around just a bunch. Um Anyways, from these examples and these like historical examples that I mean, some of them that we'll talk about, some of them that we just like can't, um, we'll see some cool examples of uh, Christians who are like faithful and engaged in their religion in a serious way, but who are also engaged in like revolutionary struggle in ways that Western Christians like basically can't imagine. Like it's way beyond our capacity to think of acting in these ways, I think. So, for example, there's this guy who used to be a priest, but now he's uh basically just really involved in the NDF at various capacities and levels over the course of his life. Uh, a guy named Luis uh, Halandoni or something like that. I'm very sorry. Uh, I'm not <laughs> Filipino, so uh, we'll probably mispronounce everything in this podcast. But anyway, that guy uh, asked the question, why does Christian moral theology tend to justify violence that emanates from the established power, even if it is unjust, oppressive, and tyrannical? while tending to be so condemnatory of the revolutionary efforts to replace it with a more just society and government. So following that same kind of question, uh, Matt and I want to talk a little bit about how Christians can interact with revolutionary violence. And this kind of conversation has been a long time coming, I think, because we've been talking about violence since the first episode, but uh, also in dialogue with some other people. So For example, Derek Ford and Vincent Lloyd, we talked about structural violence and how you might interact with that and how um, various conversations about violence tend to be complicated for Christians when it comes to systemic violence. Uh, And then we also talked to Lambert Zardavart, who's a critical theorist uh, about systemic violence and how just pervasive and difficult it is. So, yeah, the horizon is still, you know, unclear for us, (laughs) but... I think it's like a good opportunity for us to get into it in a situation that's on the ground, even though we're not Filipino and we don't, you know, have an expert knowledge of how that all operates. It's just good to like touch down in some real practical struggles where Christians are being violent and kind of think that through. So the the communist struggle of the 1960s, like late 1960s, 1968 is the year the article that we read keeps repeating. 
um, happens. Like there are Christians like alongside the communists, like being with them. Um, uh, uh, Louis uh, Haladoni uh, is like cited to be sort of like a priest amongst the communists, like sort of like just being there, like with the, the oppressed and the poor and like the, you know, like people who are on strike or whatever. And um, the Christians that were sort of there in those struggles um, start to feel start to f- like feel like transformed by those struggles. Like they felt that like they couldn't just stand by and watch and they had to play more of like an active part in in this like uh, transformation of society. So, I, I mean, they felt like a um, they felt like a real affinity, I guess, with the CPP and the NDF. Uh, which is a pretty unique thing, I guess, to say the least, that uh, the, the Christians felt like a uh, some type of commonality with communists. Um, there's kind of an interesting part in that abstract that, uh, that we read earlier um, where uh, it's framed that the Communist Party of the Philippines is a group that is antithetical to the beliefs of the Christians, which I think is a kind of an interesting like ideological point um, that's... They're like not supposed to believe in the same things, but like, I don't know that the antithetical, the antithetical kind of doesn't make sense to me. Like, I think that the goals of the communists are probably very close to the goals of the Christians that are there, like, uh, like a just society, a society of equality, a society of like love and sharing and all that kind of like good Christian stuff. Yeah, well, that's the challenge of sorting out and piecing together uh, what this was like, because there are some interesting English language uh, journalistic accounts from the 70s and 80s that I found online. And I guess the thing that seems to be the basis of the antithetical claim to me is that, uh, like, the Catholic Church in particular just seemed to not really know what to do with it, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is interesting because in other parts of the world, the hierarchy is either um, often kind of softly on the side of revolutionary movements or like very obviously not. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the Philippines, there was like a ton of clergy people who essentially um, like exploited the networks of the church to house and support uh, local Communist Party members, which is amazing and crazy. Well, and um, like and most controversially, even not just like exploiting those networks in all of the ways, like like literally yeah. fun- like funneling money to the Communist Party of the Philippines. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, money and connections and people. Um, that's like a really fascinating connection that I don't know, it's hard to find in other places, at least in terms of like a party movement um, and its coalitions with the church in particular. Uh, but the hierarchy seems um I don't know, unclear about it. Like, I found a couple of articles where, you know, you get, like, the token bishop who's like, oh, I think this is a bad idea, not good, don't want it to happen. And then they'll interview someone from inside the movement who says, yeah, well, I don't know, Catholicism's complicated, like, this is how we're living it out, and we just disagree with the bishop on this or that. Uh, So depending on what kind of Catholic you are, I guess that could be a problem for you. But uh, for a lot of these um, people who joined these parties and movements, it was not a problem. It was viewed as a as not antithetical, like you were saying, Matt. Right. Um, and the the article that we're kind of coming from the Ann Harris article, the theology of struggle thing, I just mentioned too, like makes it like a pretty big point to talk about like that that these Christians like weren't just didn't just like you know they weren't on board from the very beginning. Like it took like it took some like real transformation and some real consciousness raising to get them to this to this point of joining the NDF. And um, even even not even just joining the NDF, but also joining the NPA, the uh, the National People's Army, like the military wing of the movement. So um, I don't know, it like stuff had to take place. They had to be sort of like transformed, not only not just as like people who are church people, but, you know, they had to be like form some type of like radical subjectivity or something to get there. It took a second. Yeah, that's right. And the CNL, the specifically Christian uh, group for liberation, wasn't at first like a natural um, organ of the Revolutionary Party, but eventually they all kind of became buds. That's the impression I get anyhow. For for a time, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, we should say, too, that things are obviously more complicated in the Philippines today, uh, and I hesitate to speak about that for a lot of reasons. Um but we'll just kind of like bracket that for this conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but but regardless, um, Christians, I guess they they felt like frustrated, just kind of standing by on the sidelines. Um, 
they had enough of like being with and had to start being for, I guess, to get yeah, all, that's like, right. Heideggerian for a hot second. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, being for in the sense that like they didn't want to just be on the sidelines, but they wanted to be there, like part of the armed struggle. So like there are accounts of like priests and other clergy people like leaving the church and joining these organizations and um, like doing the real radical work, which is uh, yeah unprecedented, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one thing that really struck me was a quote that uh, Harris has from a guy named Ben uh, Moraleda, a redemptorist priest. Mm-hmm. So uh, she has this quote. I don't know. She's interviewing him. She interviewed a bunch of people for this. It must be like field work or something. But yeah. anyway, he said, uh, right before the farmer's eyes, his wife is raped. His sons are killed. Who am I to say to him? Don't take up arms. Uh, and yeah, right. that's like such a I don't know like that's exactly what's at stake right so yeah they're entertaining those problems as genuine problems and also as like priests you know like authoritative religious figures so mm-hmm. I think that's like very interesting yeah it is very interesting and uh, I don't know definitely not the type of um, sentiment you get from I don't know even the religious left in America like in the United States you know it's uh <laughs> wildly different pretty yeah. pretty buck wild over there all right but meanwhile while these uh sort of revolutionary energies are fomenting um the philippines uh like the state uh basically institutes a martial law that is incredibly <laughs> brutal and oppressive and that's where the um comments about you know all this violence being done to local people and stuff that this particular redemptorist priest was commenting on that's where that comes in Right, like, um, yeah, like martial law enacted against um, like picket lines and and anybody you know who might be uh, might be like radicalized or something. Yeah, and specifically, the article mentions uh, repressing specifically nonviolent forms of opposition, and that's like the big kind of triggering moment, I guess. Because mm-hmm. it's like even picketing doesn't work. So at that point, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> <sighs> right. Well. I, I don't know. There's like a, a thousand more things we could talk about when it comes to the situation in the, in the Philippines uh, because it is very complicated and very interesting. Um, but I guess uh, as it pertains to our podcast, uh, there's like, this is like an, an actual example of um, Christians uh, siding with like revolutionary forces and like armed revolutionary forces. And like, I don't know, we should probably just take a second to, think about how like outside the norm that is like completely i don't know it just doesn't seem like that's a a thing i feel like so far this podcast is us being like wow isn't this this thing they're doing the thing and uh (laughs) i'm very surprised by that thing but it is actually like it is actually outside the ordinary i don't know it's like the thing that like all leftist christians like are always like like yeah that should happen like christians should become more politically organized and like side with these parties or whatever And uh, here it actually happened, and, like, we don't even pay attention to it usually. Yeah, okay, so it is crazy. Uh, It's crazy to think of Christians joining leftist party movements, etc. But I think it might be interesting to kind of just read the very last bit of this article, because there's some cool and helpful stuff there. So she's talking about the specificity of this Filipino situation and writes... uh, So, uh, on the other hand, church people opened networks that may otherwise not have become available to the struggle, sheltered the movement from the worst successes of martial law, and projected an alternative social order. Uh, Often regarded simply as leftists, they were initially known as CNL, an organization that remains perhaps the only Christian movement globally ever to overtly join with communist forces. That's already very interesting. Yeah. Uh, However, she says, in neglecting to appreciate the depth of Philippine religiosity, members of the Communist Party of the Philippines failed to value church people's driving force, their faith. Later renaming themselves the Theology of Struggle, church people extended their work to the production of written material that outlined their vision, making their fight for social justice known internationally. Uh, So just to kind of fill in like a final gap before we move to our own conversation... Mm-hmm. Um, these social movements that were really, uh, interestingly wedded together for, you know, a significant amount of time in terms of social movements, uh, slowly started to fragment and splinter as they often do. Um, and in the case of the Christians, like some of them really stayed on and, you know, like that guy, Louis Holodoni, who we talked about was, 
I think he's in his 80s and he's like still a part of the NDF going strong, writing stuff and being a spokesperson for them. Uh, but like other people ended up leaving and sort of just, I don't know, reflecting on things theologically and in terms of writing and a little less practically. That's the impression that I get. Um, though, though, here's like an alternative account too. Um, or at least here's it's one alternative account. This is from uh, Jose Maria Sison, who I think is um, he's part of the Communist Party of the Philippines, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, so, Sison uh, says this, The officers and members of the CNL studied the documents of the Communist Party of the Philippines, especially the program uh, for People's Democratic Revolution and uh, Amado uh, Guerrero's Philippine Society and Revolution, and engaged the communists in dialogue for mutual understanding cooperation in the social, economic, political, and cultural fields. The Christian side did not oblige the communists to study Christian theology, neither did the communists oblige the Christians to study Marxism and Leninism, but certainly in the course of ever-continuing dialogue, each side took interest in studying the principles of the other side. So, um, I don't know, maybe it didn't end very well, but it seemed like for a minute there was like a nice dialogue, a nice back and forth, a nice solidarity. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part to me. Like, I don't know, social movements break and splinter and it happens, and that's boring. Uh, everybody knows that. Um, but I think what's very interesting is actually the way in which it, so it wasn't just, uh, I don't know, a random nun or a random priest who decided to be a communist. Uh, it was like bishops, like Catholic bishops and Protestant clergy and hierarchy, you know, significant establishment figures that were willing to enter into dialogue with, um, the CNL. And just like in other parts of the world where there are armed struggles, like the Zapatistas, for example, Um, The church often plays a kind of mediating role in peace processes and other things for better and worse, I guess. But uh, it's interesting because there's a certain um, trust there between Christians and the left uh, that I think is just so, I don't know, it's like what I hope for. And I mean, in a way, it's the spirit that motivates this podcast. It's like why I wanted to talk to Derek right off the bat, you know, because like building those coalitions are so important. Yeah. Um, and even, even that, uh, what I was just reading goes on to the communists learn more deeply than ever about the faith and good works of the Christians. They distinguish the good Christians from the bad ones among the exploiting class who use religion as an opium to delude themselves and the people. On the other hand, the Christians learn to appreciate materialist dialectics and class analysis as tools for understanding and solving social problems and for changing society. Like you said, this is, this is good. This is what I want. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Uh, even if it was only for a minute, I guess. Um, Okay, uh, it's probably also worth noting, too, before we move on, that the CNL, the NDF, uh, the CPP, all of the great acronyms uh, are still <laughs> alive and doing things in the yeah, Philippines. Yeah, that's right. It's not like this is over or anything. Um, so it's a real, uh, still like a real struggle. Still things are really happening. So Yeah, and if you Google it around, it's like finding these uh, Christian and communist connections are not hard. Like they just immediately emerge because that's kind of still the driving animating force, it seems to me. Yeah, it's uh, still there, still happening. It's interesting that these are like uh, examples we don't hear about very much, though, um, or at least not without looking. Yeah, that's right. All right, Matt, so uh, violence, that's a thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast without ever actually talking about it. Um, yeah. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. So um, this is the part of the podcast where I probably like t- I, I talk too much about my own personal life or whatever, um, <laughs> but uh, I guess being like an evangelical Christian growing up and going to a school that was a Christian school... Um, and even being at a Christian school now, uh, this question of violence has always been really interesting to me and I guess really important. Um, I think that there's a time in every like, uh, like young United States Christians life when they go to college, they become like a pacifist after they read Stanley Hauerwas. Uh, (laughs) that's that's, yeah. And that's like definitely me. Uh, there was this, I mean, there was this time that lasted a very long time where I really subscribed to the idea of pacifism and how important it was sort of ideologically. Um, And that probably started my unhealthy uh, fixation on like, yeah, but is that struggle violent or not? Yeah. yeah. Um, And uh, now I've kind of reached the other end of the spectrum where I'm like not a pacifist at all. Not that I think like violence is really, really good, but um, 
I just don't think that like that ideological purity of pacifism is like a helpful tool at all. Um, and uh, I don't know. It seems this is like a, a really interesting example of like Christians who are being very faithful and uh, who are not pacifists in the least. Like they're they're like they understand the reasons that violence is, uh, I guess, uh, necessary in times of oppression. Yeah, it's interesting to think about pacifism as it relates to these kinds of social movements, because one thing that people often point to is, for example, uh, you know, Gandhi's movement in India, because it would be very easy to say, oh, well, uh, of course, like Stanley Harawas can be a pacifist, like he's a, you know, rock star professor at Duke University, like he's never really had to worry about violence in a real significant way in his life. Um, But you can point to times when nonviolent action or what gets called nonviolent action uh, seems to have been effective. But I think it's interesting to think about, um, you know, when your country has basically instituted martial law against you (laughs) as a person or against your church congregation, um, it just turns the problem around, uh, I think, in a way that you just have to face up to it very honestly and, and openly and I think that's what I appreciate most about the Catholics in the Philippines and the communists in the Philippines who are trying to foster that dialogue. Because um, like you, Matt, uh, I also had that kind of pacifist phase as a young evangelical, you know, like the Bible means that or the Bible says that you ought to be nonviolent. And that's like a pure moral ethical stance. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, things are a lot more difficult when you're faced with, uh, I don't know, the brutalities of like being on the wrong side of capitalism. <laughs> right. Um, and just like, I don't know, in the face of just like brutal injustice from state powers to say like, oh, no, you just just suffer through it, I think is uh, horrendous. I don't know. Yeah. That seems very bad. Uh, it's so tough, though, because I mean, it is a driving current of Christianity, right? Like, I mean, that's basically what Christianity is born from is uh, just suffer through it. <laughs> like uh, the church is built on the blood of martyrs, right? That's kind of the uh, the line that gets sort of trotted out uh yeah it is (laughs) it is but like i don't know it just seems um it's it's hard to expect that from people it's hard i don't know it's hard to be a christian (laughs) i guess doing that (laughs) i don't know man it seems like um it seems like fighting back sometimes is also good though (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, And I think that the Bible is actually more complicated than people make it out to be. Um, And even the situation of early Christians is a lot more complicated than, you know, living in a society as we do now, which is basically the fruit of Christianity in like the worst possible way in a lot of cases. Um, Yeah, I I think that I mean, like, um, just like to, to suffer through it is it seems like such like an empty thing to say since I, I mean like the, the colonial situation of the Philippines like is brought, is brought to you by like imperialism fueled by like Catholicism too, you know, like it's, it's like suffer through what we've already done to you. Like what, like why, why beyond that side of the violence? Like why beyond only the side of the violence that has instituted like the large, the large like systemic evil done um because like just saying to suffer through it is still being on the side of violence it's not pacifist it's like it's just taking a side yeah that's right something you said a while back i think you were talking about um your ma advisor uh but you said something about how um given all the structural violence in the entire world uh when people actually fight back for like a brief moment uh that's probably the least violent thing that's happening uh yeah that's a very interesting um... point to me yeah, he's um yeah, so uh in his book Spectres of Revolt, uh everyone go buy it. It's very good. Say his name cuz I forgot it so I just referred uh, to him as your MA advisor. <laughs> <laughs> his yeah, his name is Richard Gilman Opolsky. Uh his yeah, the book is called Spectres of Revolt. He has a, bu- a bunch of other books. Uh there's one called Precarious Communism, there's one called Spectacular Capitalism, and then there's one I don't remember the name of and it's about Zapatistas and it's very good. Anyways, in the newest book that he wrote um Spectres of Revolt, he has um, a, a few sections that make reference to uh, uprisings in Baltimore and in Ferguson, but uh, specifically in the essay, so he has a, a chapter called The Ferguson Revolt Did Not Take Place, and it's um, 
Well, it's about um, a lot of things. It's not worth getting into at this point. But the <laughs> the point is that like um, is that like uh, during the Ferguson revolts, people saw like the damage, like property damage or something, like in like the the more like riotous sections that were televised, and you know uh like liberals and conservatives of like alike lost their minds they're like yeah. oh my gosh look how violent these people are they burnt down a cvs or something yeah but but really like in in comparison to like the rest of i don't know the united states history and like race relations like is that is that violent or is like it was the entire system set up to disadvantage some people for the benefit of others like actually more violent i don't know Burning yeah. down a CVS doesn't seem so bad in like in light of the like that long history. Yeah, I agree, and that's exactly what the, I guess that's the calculus that's happening. It seems to me on the part of these um, Christians in particular who are you know really entertaining the possibility of violence in the sixties and seventies and eighties in the Philippines and elsewhere in the world. But uh, as it's as it's relevant to our case study, like you know, they're basically asking the question of. Uh, <laughs> How are we going to deal with the fact that there's a martial law in a militant state that's, you know, genuinely coming after our prisoners, but also there's like a global network of, uh, I don't know, capitalist interests that are not worried about what happens to, you know, the people in your pews, etc. And if you're a priest or a person of a religious order or just a lay person, it's like, hopefully your Christian commitments would actually motivate you to think about the systemic problems that are happening there and... I don't know, entertain the difficult possibility that you might have to uh, do something that you don't even necessarily feel comfortable with. So you said that there's like a calculus you have to do. And I think that's really like that calculus is off putting to some people. Um, Yeah. And it's not quite like that violence might not be as cut and dry as like individual like vacuum sealed uh, instances of like someone doing something violent to someone else is probably unsettling to people just that it's like a messy situation i don't i don't think that people like necessarily want to stick with that um but i think that <laughs> calculus is kind of necessary at least if you want to understand the world in like materialist terms um you have to understand like some type of like f- calculus of violence um that's the name of my next book calculus of violence <laughs> or also the name of my next metal band i don't know either i think would be very good yeah i agree uh, i would buy both uh both products uh <laughs> great i appreciate that <laughs> those are uh this is uh this is no longer the magnificast this is now where i'm just like gonna workshop ideas for bands yeah uh it's it's all it's all about gorillas here but it's gorilla marketing now <laughs> oh no <laughs> uh yeah i think too there's something about the ways that Christians have understood violence throughout the centuries that's interesting. I mean, Christianity historically for the majority of its existence is not nonviolent. Um, like the bulk of its existence and the bulk of its populations are not nonviolent. Yeah. And so, you know, Christians have spent a lot of time thinking about violence and arguably that doesn't mean that just because there's a precedent, you should keep doing it, obviously. But uh, one stance that has always really interested me is actually Um, A kind of loose position held by a lot of people I've heard in the Orthodox Church um, that like violence is always wrong, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, uh, which I think is very cool. Um, So the assumption is basically like, yeah, you're going to sin, but like just do it and you have to kind of ask for the grace to get through it. You know, like that seems to kind of resonate with even things that a lot of revolutionaries say, like... uh, there's a pretty famous line from Fidel that I can't remember, but the paraphrase of it is basically like, we don't like violence, uh, but we're in a violent situation and we're reacting to, you know, basically like the hand we've been dealt. Um, and I think it's interesting that the Orthodox have kind of, in some ways, uh, at least theologically, if not always in practice, um, have a way of articulating that that I think is sort of helpful. Uh, Yeah, I guess it is helpful. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think there's still like, a frustrating logic to it that the people who like appeals to absolute pacifism, like can't understand still Um, like, Oh man, well, it's still sins. Like, why would you do it? But there's, (laughs) there are situations I think where you're forced to either do that or suffer. And I guess like, I don't know. um, That seems like the 
better option. Yeah, um, maybe can we like push the calculus back in the other direction for a second? Because the other calculus you would have to do if you were nonviolent would be to say, um, by not uh, engaging in certain strategic actions that you think are violent. Um, that's a very hedged uh, way of putting it. <laughs> um, yeah. By not doing that, you're somehow being uh, more um, faithful or less sullied, I guess, by these actions. But at the same time, you're also still potentially, you know, the calculus is, that you're doing is you're still potentially uh, participating in massive uh, sinful systems, right? So like uh, the Benedict option or something, or uh, oh, even oh no. like <laughs> like a Harawasian, you know, theoretical community or whatever. Um, there, there's a beauty to it, but it kind of becomes like a kind of beautiful soul moment where you're like just preserving your own purity. But by yeah. doing that, you're actually very complicit in the systems that enable you to live that kind of life. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, this reminds me of a quote from Herbert McCabe. Uh, so we're going to talk about that more in a future episode but i'm gonna i'm gonna read this quote really quick is that cool yeah totally all right it's awesome so i don't know i feel like if you say christianity and violence you actually are uh, legally obligated to say herbert mccabe so uh, (laughs) yeah i think that's right here yeah okay so here's the uh here's the quote from herbert mccabe uh this is from a uh an essay called christian love and uh i'm sorry it's called class struggle and christian love Uh, Which is great. A great title. (laughs) Not the title of my next band, but maybe. (laughs) Okay, so Herbert McCabe says this. We still need to face the question of revolutionary violence. How could that be compatible with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, first of all, in this matter, we should not lose our sense of humor. (laughs) Uh, There is something especially ludicrous about Christian churchmen coming around to the belief that violence is wrong. There's probably no sound on earth so bizarre as the noise of clergymen bleeding about terrorism and revolutionary (laughs) violence, while their cathedrals are stuffed with regimental flags and monuments to colonial wars. The Christian church, with minor exceptions, has been solidly on the side of violence for centuries, but normally it has only been the violence of soldiers and policemen. It is only when the poor catch on to violence that it suddenly turns out to be against the gospel. Um, So... The situation in the Philippines here, I think, is exactly that one minor that one minor exception where the Christian church is like <laughs> maybe on the right side, like on the side, <laughs> on like actually on the side of the poor, like on the side of the people who are being like actively oppressed. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think I don't know. Uh, that's uh forever my rebuttal to claims for pacifism is is exactly <laughs> that. Like, um, your pacifism is built on on the back of uh, long histories of violence against people. Yeah, it's interesting, too, how um, especially uh, these kind of, I don't know, peripheral like Catholic countries often key into this. Uh, The Philippines is an interesting example because it doesn't get as much press. But people are a lot more familiar with Latin America where, you know, uh, there are famous heroes like Camilo Torres, who we've mentioned on this podcast before, who's famous for saying if Jesus were alive today, he would be a gorilla. Um, the Zapatistas, like demographically, most of them are somewhat Catholic in one way or another. Uh, I think that's right. Like, it's kind of a weird thing. Um, the Nicaraguan Revolution, like tons and tons of Christians were involved in that. And all those uh, kind of demographic uh i don't know examples it's like yeah obviously some people probably are more thoughtful than other people on how they're whatever <laughs> integration of faith and learning uh oh my operates God. in those contexts <laughs> but uh integration you know, of faith like, and, vi- and like warfare or like <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh but there's a precedent there like people do it they think about it and it, it operates um at a thoughtful level and i think it's important to like take that seriously and not write it off based on some kind of i don't know like moral a priori yeah that's a good point though um yeah uh people like christians who engage in revolutionary violence um i'm not going to just say warfare because i think that's harder but like revolutionary violence at least um like they're not doing it because like they're dumb and they don't read the Bible or something, or they're not yeah. real Christians, right? They're doing it for like real reasons. There's like actual like material realities that force them into doing those things. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is a good opportunity to talk about an article that I thought was kind of neat. Um, oh yeah, it was in Roar magazine, uh, 
and it was written by a guy named Ben Case. So it's called um, Beyond Nonviolence or Beyond Violence and Nonviolence. And I don't know, there are some flaws in it, I think. But the takeaway that I really liked was that essentially he's trying to problematize uh, the kind of ethical purity stance that often gets assumed in nonviolence. Um, I don't know. Did you read that article? I did. Yes. Uh, what did you think? It is it is good. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think um, maybe maybe here's a good quote that um, might sum up, I guess, sort of the takeaway. Is it cool if I read this too? I'm yeah. just the quote guy. I'm the quote guy in this podcast now. <laughs> okay, Quotes so this are good. is they're they're yeah. all smarter than we are. So yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast where we read quotes to you by other people. <laughs> a podcast uh, about quotes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's uh, here's the quote from that uh, the Roar uh, essay. Um, Malcolm X's famous statement that we want freedom by any means necessary is frequently referenced to defend the use of diversity of tactics, classically juxtaposed to King's nonviolence. However, the last word in Malcolm X's sentence receives less attention than it should. The word necessary implies a strategic logic by which means are required to achieve a particular goal. But in and of itself, this approach does not point to a strategy. So um, I guess the the point here is that, like, um, you should do what is necessary. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this, it seems like a, it's like a reiteration of like a pretty old timey, like Marxist sentiment that like revolution doesn't happen um, like in a set path, like the the glorious immortal science of Marxism, Leninism can't really give you much um other than other than to tell you that like i don't know what what are the mater- like what's the material necessity of the time like what is right. um like uh what is required in, at this particular point in history like and that's all like, like that's all you can say about like you know you can't predict a revolution it just happens or it doesn't happen <laughs> um and like it it depends on the material like reality of any given time or place yeah i think what i appreciate too about um this article in particular is that Couching it in terms of strategy helps to avoid moralism on both sides because there's also a kind of disparaging look at nonviolent or what what gets called nonviolent action sometimes on the part of revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. And like it's demonstrably true, obviously, that nonviolent tactics can work in certain cases. Um, they're like very good brands, nonviolence. Um, yeah, yeah, people for sure. sign right up to those. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's true, and revolutionaries are right to be upset that people often kind of limit the case to those uh, actions as the only permissible ones. And I think it's true that, you know, uh, if there's going to be any way forward, it's going to have to be collapsing those kinds of, uh, I don't know, ethical camps that just admit no other possibilities. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, there's another really good book. Uh, I don't know if it's really good, but I think it's worth worth mentioning. Um, it's a book called, uh, funny enough, I guess, Shooting Hipsters. <laughs> it's uh, the author's name is Christiana Spence, and uh, she and like in the book, like the idea is like she's she talks about like uh, different like protest movements, different um, social justice issues, like I guess just like like. Um, like the ways that like um, media latch onto those movements and uh, how like using violence can like just like screw you over in the end and like how media always uses like violence to discredit protesters. So she's like a big proponent of nonviolent protests, not because it's like morally right, but because it's strategically helpful uh, when media like, you know, like when a reporter has a camera in your face or something. Yeah, that's interesting. It's at least like a better way of asking the question, I think. Um Like, would this be helpful right here at this moment or would it not? And I think it's just important to not get bogged down in um, these kind of principled stances that are like, well, this is just always wrong. Uh, And then that's the thing that you use to basically police the actions of other oppressed peoples in a way. Um, I really appreciated. So I don't know. Nonviolence is like a thing that I have a lot of respect for, obviously, for a good reason um yeah yeah and christians should have respect for it i think so i don't mean to like disparage it but i think the nonviolence that i respect the most uh was actually articulated by none other than uh pope francis um <laughs> pope air horns i guess i don't know oh here we go again 
Yeah, so articulated by another, none other than Pope Francis uh, in his apostolic exhortation called Evangelia Gaudium. Uh, so sections, I don't know, 59 and 60-ish, I guess. Uh, so he has a stance about nonviolence. This exhortation is essentially about like wealth inequality um, and other stuff, but specifically wealth inequality. Very underrated document by Pope Francis people should read. <laughs> but... In it, uh, he has a section on inequality, and it's called No to the Inequality Which Spawns Violence. So Pope Francis in the last few years has been really intentional about talking about nonviolence and like specifically endorsing it and saying that that's what Christians ought to do. Um, There's talk about maybe like an encyclical on the horizon about nonviolence, which I'm very worried about. Uh, Uh, Yeah. But what makes me less worried is sections like this. So um, I'll just read a little bit of it, but... He says, for example, uh, today in many places we hear a call for greater security, but until exclusion and inequality in society and between peoples are reversed, it will be impossible to eliminate violence. The poor and poorer peoples are accused of violence, yet without equal opportunities, the different forms of aggression and conflict will find a fertile terrain for growth and eventually explode. Uh, And then he goes on to say, we are far from the so-called end of history. Since the conditions for a sustainable and peaceful development have not yet been adequately articulated and realized, today's economic mechanisms promote inordinate consumption, yet it's evident that unbridled consumerism combined with inequality proves doubly damaging to the social fabric. Inequality eventually engenders a violence which recourse to arms cannot and never will be able to resolve. So that's kind of his, like, criticism. Uh mm-hmm. That basically, like, I don't know, it's kind of a Lambert thing, right? Societal evil is, like, just too much of a big deal. Um, but what I like about it a lot is that he just intentionally says, uh, the violence is on the part of the system of inequality and we shouldn't disparage people who like get upset about it. Like we should expect it. Uh, yeah, that's like a pretty interesting way to put it. Um, hmm. That's like a surprising, like, I think materialist understanding of a situation like that too. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, isn't like almost deterministic (laughs) (laughs) yeah or at least i don't know i think it just expects that like people are gonna get pissed when they don't have access to you know um i don't know feeling like there's anything for them to live for yeah um it's i think it's just a helpful way to think about the situation because it puts the like the onus for um i don't know um class violence like on society at large like the stratification of social classes in general and not like on the people enacting violence and I think that's good yeah the worry i guess that i have and often have with pope francis is he's absolutely right about that systemic analysis but then it's the the nonviolent solution that like yeah like i wish that that was possible i mean and obviously like i don't own a gun i live in toronto uh and i'm not part of an armed struggle and i just read about them talk about them on on podcasts on the internet uh like i don't want to do that uh i wish that pope francis was right about all that but i guess i also feel like maybe he's wrong yeah how so just in terms of um like how would you go about correcting this inequality uh i mean that's textbook marxism right like uh, the idea is you can't just legislate inequality away. Like, that's the problem with Bernie Sanders. Um, you could have all the regulations of the banks uh, all day, but, like, those bankers want that profit, and they're not just going to let you take it from them and redistribute it uh, through yeah. legal means. And they will win every single time in a system that rewards them over and over again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, this is exactly what's happening in Venezuela right now. Uh, like they had a socialist uh, democratic election and then Chavez was almost deposed via a military coup on the part of reactionary bourgeois forces. And then they re-voted him back in because he was really popular and then he died. And now in kind of the chaos that's ensued, like uh, there's no way that there's like a nonviolent resolution to the Venezuelan situation where, uh, you know, they're going to sort this out and it will still be a socialist uh, society at the end. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I see. I see what you're saying, though. Yeah, um, they're just like impasses when people. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that is a like reality of the world. Yeah, I don't know. It like bums me out, but I just can't really like get <laughs> out of it. 
Yeah, no, you're right. Um, hmm. I, I mean, it, it's it's complicated for us, <laughs> but it's uh, probably even more complicated for people who try to espouse pacifism, like at an ideological level. <laughs> I hope so. Like, yeah. Uh, like, what do you like? What do you do in those situations? I guess if you're a pacifist, I don't really know. <laughs> like you go, like you go and shock a little. Yeah, I guess. So. Cows, yeah, you're like it. tempted to blow up buildings, but you don't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> The temptation is the important part, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it is the important part, though, for real. Um, it's interesting to think of people like the Zapatistas or even the Black Panther Party because, uh, you know, they were famously um, okay with violence, but they couch it in the language of self-defense, which I think is really interesting and strategically helpful. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's not going to, like, create a global revolution, obviously, um, but that's like a dangerous thing to play with too so <laughs> uh yeah and like it's hard too because zapatistas aren't even like i don't know like it's i don't know man every single like revolutionary instance is difficult because like the material realities are so different yeah that's right and because like everything that's going on is so different but like the zapatistas aren't even like you know in like they didn't even try to seize the government, right? Yeah. They tried to, they try, they're trying to find like other political inroads and they're like very successful at doing so. Um, and like, because they're not trying to seize, seize like the government or whatever, you know, in some type of like old, old style 1917, like revolution, um, there's like much less violence. So I don't know. There's something, something to be said too, that just like, I don't, I don't know. Different tactics deal, yield different results. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's interesting that in many of these situations, violent situations, the Catholic Church often is a kind of mediator um, between the two parties, like the violent party, well, <laughs> both the violent parties, the right violent party and the wrong violent <laughs> party. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. Uh, and it's interesting how that operates, because I guess the assumption is that the Catholic Church isn't a, um, a priori like pacifist organization and they're capable of sympathizing with uh, revolutionary violence, but also wanting peace. Um, that's kind of like a really weird like third position, um, not in terms of ideological stances, but just in terms of actual material life. Like uh, when I was doing research for this um, podcast episode now on the Philippines, uh, there were a few times that they, uh, the NDF put out statements kind of mourning the passing of like a specific bishop or a particular priest. Uh, and the Zapatistas have done that as well, uh, noting that, you know, they weren't necessarily like fully uh, members of this or that party, but they were in solidarity with those people who were struggling and trying to get them a hearing and a voice and trying to find a way that they wouldn't have to like take up arms, you know. And I, I thought that was interesting that they like, you know, su- they appreciated that. Well, there's just like a, it's it's complicated because there's like even in the Philippines, it's hard to say that there's like it, it's not hard to say that there's like one side that's good and one side that's bad. But right. what's hard to say is that like uh, because they because they because both sides choose a specific type of violence and a specific like intensity of violence that like there are there are moral evils being done for sure on both sides. Like, yeah, um, I don't know. The, the National Pe- People's Army is not like. Um, like guiltless or something like that uh i i mean i don't think either of us are trying to like say that but it's just like um yeah yeah for sure in 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 instances of revolutionary violence it's not like all romantic it's not all good it's like actual real struggle that comes with real costs and like probably lots of moral evil so like um violence is a material reality of the world that we have to deal with in some ways and like there are probably some types of violence to opt for over others i guess maybe that's a better way yeah yeah i don't know No, I think that's right. Um, And I guess that's really, you know, when I think about violence, I just find that conversations about it often uh, start out with like very undefined terms or assumed propositions that never make sense to me. Like, what is violence such that one could be nonviolent? Or uh, aren't there ways in which Martin Luther King Jr. is profoundly violent? uh, Or ways that Gandhi is profoundly violent? Um, And, you know, all these kinds of things become not just, I don't know, meaningless rhetorical games or something like that. Like, there's more at stake there, obviously. Uh, But I just think that it's important to fess up to the complications of 
what it means to live in like a globalized society that is just actively unifying people under a principle of exploitation. Like that's a hard thing to just sort out. Yeah. Well, here's, here's like, um, we've been dealing with like the sort of morality question about violence for like, I don't know, 45 minutes or so or whatever. <laughs> uh, maybe here's like a left question to mix it up a little bit. Um, or a, maybe a left Christian question to mix it up, even though they don't exist according to Lambert, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, um, even though there are these problems with revolutionary violence that we're, like, mining here, that, like, it's very difficult, like, morally, uh, but sometimes, like, I guess necessary, um, can you, uh, can you be, like, a Christian in a first world country and, um, like, and a leftist and also have, like, a sense of solidarity with these people, even though, um, I don't know, it's a difficult situation, like, morally? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to like feel in solidarity with people that uh, you've never really met. But um, yeah, at the same time. But yeah, like I hope that they win. I mean, that's kind of how I feel, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess me too. I It's just like um, I'm thinking about like, OK, um, they're not they're not like weirdos, but like. <laughs> okay, so, you know, like on Twitter, uh, Twitter tankies and they'll be like, um like super pro North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Like uh I'm sorry. There will be super pro like Democratic People's Republic of Korea, DPRK. Um that's how I should actually say it and not be uh, a crappy imperialist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like um like there's a difference between like hey, like imperialism is bad even on the DPRK and like being like yeah and also uh kim jong-un is great or something you know yeah, like yeah. i feel like there's like there's like a tank like a cro- like a line that like uh that some tankies cross where it's just like yeah and like that's um and they're like doing a really good job and i hope they keep doing whatever, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah like um i don't know yeah it's uh i guess it's weird because like i hope that the cpp in the philippines win and i I guess, like, I hope for the best for the DPRK, but I don't know what the best is, so, like, whatever, I guess. Yeah, I know. I mean, I get, I guess the the moment of sympathy with things like the DPRK is to say, uh, even if there are pathologies in these societies, they're kind of reasonably explained or whatever, and I get that, um, but I agree with you. I mean, it's hard to, like, just be like, yeah, he's doing a, like, Kim Jong-un is doing a great job, and we should all, like, uh, rally around that guy and have photos in our apartments <laughs> yeah, of him right. or something. I don't know. Not not my not my bag. No. Even though I think that there is a case to be made that, like, I nobody should be, like, lampooning uh, Kim Jong-un or, like, making fun of North Korea or whatever. And, like, people should hope that, I don't know, they have a less precarious position in relation to literally everyone in the world. Uh you know, I get that, and I support that, um, and it's more nuanced than whatever we grew up learning, etc. But yeah, uh, I don't want to like swing that pendulum all the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, maybe like a like a sympathy for the people there is, I guess, what I feel, and uh, not in any way like support for authoritarianism. I don't know, man. <laughs> Something to it's, ask uh, uh, Derek when he comes back, I guess. Yeah, it seems like he'd probably have a very good answer for this question. Yeah. Okay. Well conversations about like revolutionary violence and being people of faith are like obviously very difficult as you guys have heard us like uh struggle with this question for the last like i don't know uh 60 minutes or however long this podcast ends up being (laughs) um i guess like what what kind of seems to still be important to me at least um uh being the quote guy of this podcast i guess i'll just uh chime in here with a quote um in the German ideology, Marx uh, is trying to define like what communism is or something, um, and he says that it's not a stable state, but it's like the it's like the um, like the history of the ab- like the abolition of capitalism. It's like the long game of um, of like like the struggle of the proletariat, and and like in a like matter, like even though these like uh, moments of revolutionary violence are difficult for us to parse out, like morally and ethically and religiously. Uh, what I guess is good and like reassuring is that like the effects of protest and the effects of like uprising go far beyond like the um, like the moment or like the uh, the current disenfranchisement of people or disappointment in people and that like 
current struggle and past struggle are connected to future struggle for like toward the liberation of like all people um so take that capitalism <laughs> we did it we did it in the future though in only in the yeah, future yeah yeah Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, our summer reading group is starting next month on July 11th. So if you hadn't heard about that, it's all over our blog. And we're going to read a bunch of books by Paul Virilio, who's a really cool Christian anarchist thinker. Uh, so sign up for that on Patreon. It costs a dollar, so you can afford it. Uh, it would be great to have you. Also, shout out to all our Patreon supporters already. Uh, it's really exciting that people are encouraging us to keep making these podcasts. I don't know. It's very fun. We appreciate that a lot. Uh, next week, we're going to bring Derek Ford back again by popular demand, uh, and we're going to talk about Lenin and Herbert McCabe. So we're going to trade some essays, build some uh, coalitions, and uh, see where it goes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up.